Well, we will be turning in our Bibles to one of the minor prophets, to the book of Habakkuk. Uh, it's a small book and can be hard to find, so if you make your way in your Bibles to the book of Matthew and you take a reverse four, you come back four books, you'll come to the book of Habakkuk. It's only three chapters, and we're going to be looking at the third chapter together. Just to give a little context to our reading um, Habakkuk is a very unique prophet, uh, because most of the prophets, you are tuning in to the dialogue between the prophet and the people of God. But with Habakkuk, what you find is this prophet is wrestling with God himself. And in the first two chapters, his problem is that he tells God that he has been constantly pleading with the nation of, Israel, of Judah, that they would forsake their sins, that if they do not abandon their sins and continue in these treacherous paths, that God is going to bring judgment upon the people of Judah. And in chapter 2, God tells Habakkuk that he is not uh, going to wait forever, that he will bring judgment upon the people of Judah, and he's going to do it through the nation of Babylon. And Habakkuk at first is quite taken aback at this news that he is going to use an even more wicked nation, a nation like Babylon, to judge his people, to discipline his people. But now that he has heard this news, um, he gives this prayer to the people of Judah to prepare them for the hard times that lie ahead. And that is where uh, chapter 3 begins. John Calvin tells us that this prayer that Habakkuk is giving us is a prayer that is also put to song. And so when Israel would be subjugated, would be cuffed and taken under the reign of Babylon, they would have been singing this prayer, this song on their way to the land of Babylon. It is grounding God's people. It was meant to ground them in the nature of their God and the security they have in their God. So we're going to begin in verse 1. We're going to read the whole chapter together this morning. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigano. That's a musical instrument. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. In your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from His hand. And there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence and plague, followed at His heels. He stood and measured the earth, he looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? 
You strip the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah, you split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from neck, thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. What a beautiful prayer. What do you do when the world surrounds you and you feel afraid by the constant turmoil and raging of the nation? Boys and girls, you remember the story of Elisha and his servant in the book of 2 Kings when they are surrounded by an entire army. You remember the story, don't you, how the king of Assyria was trying to corner the nation of Israel. And every time he would try to back Israel into a corner, every time he would try to pin them down, he was constantly running into a problem. And the problem was that Israel seemed to be one step ahead of him. Every time he would try to back them into a corner, they would move over to the next location. And over time, the king of Syria thought, well, there must be someone in my troops that is snitching me out. There must be someone that is telling the king of Israel where I am and what I'm going to do. And so he gathers his commanders, he gathers his leaders, and he asks them, which one of you is betraying me to the nation of Israel? And his commanders told them, none of us are betraying you, our king, but there is one in the land of Israel, a prophet by the name of Elisha, who knows what you think in your bedroom. And he is the one who is telling your plans to the king of Israel and keeping them one step ahead of the game. And so this king of Syria thought, well, if I'm going to defeat the nation of Israel, I'm obviously going to have to take out this prophet. And so he took all of his troops and he lined all of the mountains and he completely surrounded Elisha and his servant. And that's where the narrative picks up. You come 
and you, you start to read it through the eyes of Elisha's servant as he walks out of the tent and he's uh, waking up to the morning sun and he sees that in the mountains on every single corner there is soldiers and men with spears and bows. And I'm sure he did not think he was going to live much longer. But you remember what happened as Elisha came out. He said to his servant, Do not be afraid. And he prayed to the Lord that the Lord would open his eyes. And when his eyes were opened, he perceived that the armies of the Lord of hosts surrounded him. And that was the day where the Lord worked a mighty deliverance, where he protected his two people. For the eyes of the Lord are on his people. He watches us, he cares for us, and he takes care of us. Now we may not have um, soldiers uh, lining up on, on rocks, you know, surrounding us in a, in a valley like uh, the time of Elisha, but we certainly uh, relate to the fear and the trepidation of an evil world that pursues us. And Habakkuk feels no different. He talks about how this nation of Babylon is coming up like a world, like a mighty storm, and it's causing him to quiver. It's causing his bones to shake. He is afraid of this nation, and rightfully so. If you know anything about the nation of Babylon, they are not known as some uh, likable nation that is merciful to the nations around them. They were a treacherous malicious nation. God Himself describes them as bitter and hasty. And at times they would dash children upon the rocks. They, they did not care for life. They were out to plunder the nations. And so when Habakkuk hears that this nation is coming, he is afraid. And so he prepares the people of Israel to find security in the midst of the fear. To find security in the midst of the dark times that lie ahead of them. And so he writes this song. And I want you to see three things of three ways that Habakkuk is grounding us to find security, uh, not in defenses or forces or numbers, but in the great God who has entered into a covenant with us. And so we're going to see how we are to revel in God's powerful character how we are to rehearse God's mighty works of the past, and lastly, how we are to rest in God's perfect plan. It is my prayer that you too, like the servant of Elisha, would have your eyes open to the great security that we have in our God. So in the first place then, we are to revel in God's mighty character. I love how this prayer begins. Um, he begins in covenantal language, O Lord, that's the name Yahweh. And if you've been in church for a while, you'll recognize that this is the title that we give to our Lord who has entered into a covenant with us. He begins by reminding Israel to call on their God as the one who has entered into a covenant with us. He's bound Himself to us. This is our God who relates to us. And he brings more to mind about God's covenantal nature. In verse 3, it's using poetical uh, language, but it is most definitely referring to God's covenant with His people. It says that God came from Taman. This is 
means that God came from the south and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now Mount Paran is one of the three mountains at Sinai where God would enter into a covenant with His people. And so He almost puts that, that covenantal na- uh, language. You know, we read it this morning, Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He takes that covenantal nature of God and He puts it in present tense. And He pictures God coming down from His covenantal love with His people from the mountain where He entered into that covenantal language. And He's coming forward to do what? He's coming to save His people. And so He's reveling in the majesty of His God. It says that His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. Revel in the majesty of His character. Find security in the power of your God. And He reminds Israel something else. That this great and mighty God is indeed punishing Israel for their sins. Is indeed chastising His people. But He has a balanced character. And that's why He says in verse 2, O Lord, in the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. You see, God was dealing with the sins of Israel, but He calls on God to remember His mercy. That these things are not out of line. That your God is not just wrath. Your God is not just punishing your sins, but your God is also full of mercy. And so Calvin has these wonderful words on this text. He says that the Scripture represents the judgment with which God judges His people as wrath, not towards their persons, but toward their sins. Though then God shows love to His chosen, yet He testifies when He punishes their sins that iniquity is hated by Him. But let us ever set up against it this truth, that God is in such a way angry that He never forgets His mercy. And so, what a comfort that is for Israel as they are feeling the judgment of God, that God is doing this for a reason. He's doing this to show them that they cannot continue living on in sin. That He hates sin. But He's doing this so that they would repent, they would turn their hearts to God, that they would seek His mercy. And that they would see the heinousness and ugliness of their sin. What a comfort for us, maybe when we feel that we are God is dealing with us and that we are facing the consequences of sin. God is disciplining us, yes. But He disciplines us as a son or as a daughter. And He does it in such a way so that we don't love sin, that we don't go further down this path of destruction, but that we turn to Him and beseech Him for His mercy. He's a great God, but He's a balanced God. You know, we know some characters that are always bitter or they're always joyful or they're always um, angry, you know. But God is not like that. God has a perfectly balanced character. He does not flare up in wrath on a whim. He has, he has full of patience and kindness. And He is a balanced character to His people. Lastly, Habakkuk revels in the everlasting character of his God. It says in verse 6 that he stood, he measured the earth, he looked, and he shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, 
in the everlasting hills um, sank below. And the picture is, he's picturing this nation of Babylon as if there's some mountain, right? You ever, boys and girls, ever go out to the mountain range and you see these tall, towering mountains and you think, wow, that mountain is not moving for a hundred generations. That mountain's going to be there years and years and years down the road. And so Habakkuk pictures this nation of Babylon who Israel would have looked at and would have thought, this nation is like a mountain. They are a strong nation, a mighty nation, thousands in number. But he says, you take this nation and you stand it up to the eternal nature of our God who one day is like a thousand years and it doesn't even compare. Give Babylon 80, 100, 200, 300 years. What is that to the infinite reign of the eternal God? And so he says, when their mountain is compared to the everlasting nature of our God, they're like a, a, a scattering ram. That the mountain is just running away. It's fleeing away. Revel in the majesty of your God. Habakkuk is getting you to say, if this God is for us, well then who could be against us? When you fear the, fear the world, when you fear the, the, the power of this world, war rising, you hear of the, the rulers uh, in their malicious intents, where do you find comfort? Do you turn to your God and, and revel in His character? Or do you shake at the knees and, and try to secure more money, more property, or whatever it might be to feel secure? Maybe you move to another country. That's not what Habakkuk is doing. He's telling his people, if you want security, turn your heads to your God. He is a God who is infinitely powerful and can do mighty things for you. Second, Habakkuk wants us to rehearse God's mighty works of old. When we rehearse what God has done in the, in the times past, we become confident in the present that He is able to do it again. And so we see that God has, uh, in His history, done mighty works, powerful works. Look at His, his control over the natural elements. You look in verse 10. It says that the mountains saw you in writhe, the raging waters swept on, the deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high. And what that is picturing is at the time of the Exodus, where God would literally breathe and part the waterways and send a whole nation to walk through the midst of the Red Sea. He has full control over the waterways, full control over nature. And the image is that the water is, is lifting its, uh, its hands in the air. It's lifting its waves up like this. And then it's shouting out to God, You are my Maker, and I will do whatever You command me to do because You are my God. It's infinite control over all of the natural elements, not just the waterways, but He goes on to show how He's also in control of sun, moon, and stars. You see in verse... Uh, 11, it says, The sun and moon stood still in their place as the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. And you remember that account in Joshua chapter 10, where Joshua prays to the Lord that he would stop the sun in its place so that he could continue to fight against 
the nations that surround them so that they would have a complete and utter victory that day. And the Lord stood the, the sun and moon in its place so that His people could continue on in victory and conquest. It's complete control over nature. It's not just complete control over nature, but it's complete control over the enemies of God. And he's highlighting this in a number of instances. I'll just point out a couple. You can look with me in verse 5. It says that before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. And what that is talking about is in the time uh, when Israel was in Egypt, what led them out of Egypt? They did not conspire They did not uh, find some swords and some elements to fight their way out of Egypt. God said to Pharaoh, let my people go. And on that decree, Pharaoh could not refuse. You see, God had told Pharaoh, let my people go. And he would send plague after plague after plague until Pharaoh said, I cannot hold it. It's going to destroy us. So get out of my land. And he pushes them out of the land. God was the one who delivered Israel. No other. And pestilence went before his feet. You remember when the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the enemies of God. What happened? They became sick. They they got fevers. They had boils. Because this Ark did not belong to them. So every time they would take this Ark, it would cause destruction among the enemies of God's people until it finally made its way back to His people. In both these instances, God is highlighting Israel did nothing. I did everything. God is the one who works victory for His people. And then you can look in verse 12 of how He marched through the earth in fury and threshed the nations in anger. You can think of the accounts of Jericho and Ai and how God was giving His people conquests throughout the land. Right? Israel had no boot camp. They were not training in the wilderness to fight the nations that lived in Canaan. What gave Israel victory in the promised land was that they had a mighty God that was working on their behalf. He has powerful control over the natural elements of the world. And He has powerful control control over the enemies of God. And it's this confidence that makes Habakkuk cry out, would you revive your work? Would you show this work again in the midst of the years? Because Habakkuk raises a question. You look in verse 8, it says, was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea?" Now, was God angry at the water that He parted the waterways? No. Habakkuk is directing your your attention to something. Why is God doing this? Why is God opening up the waterways? Why is God stopping sun and moon in the sky? It is because He is bringing salvation for His people. It was to deliver His people out of the land. It was to give them the land which He promised to them. God works again and again. In other words, He is passionate for salvation. And nothing will stand in His way to bring it to His people. In verse 13, it says that you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation 
of your anointed. And notice how the Gospel is right there. You went out for the salvation of your anointed. The word anointed is the word Messiah. God went out through His Messiah to give victory to His people. And then right after that, it says you crushed the head of the house of the wicked. And this language of crushed doesn't bring anything to mind. You remember in Genesis 3 how God had promised that He would crush the head of the serpent. And so He brings this to mind in all these examples of deliverance. That God was crushing the head of the serpent. That God was bringing victory to His people. He's doing exactly what He promised. And He's doing it through His anointed. That is how God is working salvation for His own. And this is what gives Habakkuk the initial confidence to say, God, in the midst of the years, as we are going into the nation of Babylon, as we are going to be subjugated to their tyranny for a time, in the midst of those hard and trying years, would You, Lord, again, work powerfully. Work Your works of salvation for Your people. And that's what gives us confidence as we have already done this morning to pray for the unborn. See, it's not just spiritual. It's mainly spiritual that we pray that God would deliver people, and that He would save people. But it's also physical. And so we pray for those who are being led down to the slaughter, as the Proverbs put it. For those who have no defense of their own. And we give voice to those who are helpless. That God, even in this work, would revive His works of salvation. That He would protect these little children. It's the reason we have confidence to pray on our God. God, You've worked mightily in the past. And who are we to doubt that You can do it again today? You definitely can. You are a God who is mighty to save. Never forget that. This is what He is passionate to do again and again. He gives us the confidence to pray also for spiritual revival. Not only in our land, but throughout the world. God, You have done mighty things in the would you again, in our time, revive your work? Lastly, Habakkuk wants us to rest in God's perfect plan. I love the regal stance God takes. He, he pictures him coming from, from Taman, from Mount Paran, coming from his covenantal relationship. He's coming down the, the mountain. But then you come to verse 6, and he, he takes a, a stand. It says he stood and measure the earth. It's an abrupt stop. And he kind of stands over the nations in this regal pose. And it says that he measures the nations. And this word measures is, is dealing with God's sovereign control. His wisdom. He measures the heavens with the span and the sea and the hollow of His hand. The, the, he measures the, the boundaries of the sea. He knows the stars, the number of stars by name, he counts the number of hairs on your head. And so now he is standing over the nations and he has this regal pose as he knows exactly the number of Babylonians that were coming against Israel. He knows all the nations. And he is the sovereign ruler over them all. And what is he doing? He is coming out to save his people. He's coming to crush the head of the house of the wicked. This is what He delights to do for His people, to save them. 
from what from that which they cannot save themselves. And that is where Habakkuk wants us to find rest and peace. You see that Habakkuk has no strength in himself. He speaks of how in verse 16, when he hears the news of the Babylonians, how does he react? He says, my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. You don't get the image that Habakkuk is some brave, heroic warrior ready for Babylon to come and to take them on. He feels fear and trepidation as many of us feel in the storms of this world. He says they were like a whirlwind coming up against me. But he says, I found in God a source of strength. And so he says in verse 19, God, the Lord, is my strength. That's where I find strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. You know, that's referring to the ibex goat. If you go to the uh, the land of Israel, you'll find this, this goat, and it's an extraordinary goat. At a week old, it can climb these cliffs that are like 90 degree angles. And it, it's astounding to watch these animals. And you wonder, how in the world are they standing on this cliff that is so sharp? It's because God had created the feet of this goat, and he makes them to stand on these high places. And so Habakkuk says, the Lord, He puts me in these places where I don't know how I'm going to stand. They seem like sharp cliffs, but He prepares my feet. And I know that He will cause me to stand in these sharp areas and He will make me to stay secure by the power of His hand and His grace. So we find strength in our God, but we also find joy in our God. If you read in verse 17, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Uh, maybe you've memorized these verses, beautiful verses. Uh, we don't have time to unpack all of the, the different reference here, references here, but this is speaking of the, the means by which Israel would have produce and would the, the means of provision they had in their land. So you, you take away the, the fig tree, where they got the figs and the fruit and the, the fields uh, that would give them food and the flocks. In other words, you take away all our production. You take away all these things from us. There's one thing that you cannot take away from us. You know, these words are so applicable to our time. Maybe you've lost a family member uh, due to this pandemic, or maybe you've lost a, a job, or maybe you've you've lost some other means of, of income, or even the opportunity to hang out with friends and, and to see relatives because of this pandemic that we are living in. He says, you, you take away these things. You take away all of these means of joy in this world. There's one thing that you cannot take away from us. Verse 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. There's, there's one thing that you cannot take away from. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, persecution, none of it is able to separate us. So I look at what God has done for me and I revel in that. I find joy in that. I look to that. And that is why 
I'm able to stand in this time and have joy in what the Lord has done for me. Rest in His perfect plan. You know, how far will God go? It's a question that we're, we're, we're kind of caused to reflect upon throughout this passage. Habakkuk points out that God is, is willing to part waterways. God is willing to hold the sun and moon in the, in the sky. He's willing to trample the nations for His people. God is so willing to save that He would send His only begotten Son into the world that sinners like you and me could be saved. That is how far God is willing to go. I remember when I was a kid, one of my favorite songs growing up was a song called Mighty to Save. It fits with so many of these themes. It says, everyone needs compassion. They need a love that's never failing. Let mercy fall on me. Everyone needs forgiveness, the kindness of a Savior, the hope of nations. And Savior, He can move the mountains. We just spoke of how the everlasting mountains bow down. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save. Forever, author of salvation, He rose and conquered the grave. Yes, Jesus conquered the grave. Habakkuk says these are the everlasting ways of God. This is what He's demonstrated again and again through history. And this is where you and I can find comfort in the turbulent times in which we live. Habakkuk's name means embrace. It is used of a mother embracing her son. And so he says, your God, He leaves you in the embrace of your God. His strength and His joy. It embraces you. And so as I said in the beginning, my prayer is that your eyes would be open, not to see the angels that surround you, which they probably do, but to see that the God who is within you is greater than He who is in the world. Let us pray and ask that God bless that message unto our hearts. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You so much for the power of Your Word. and We look to You in our time as the saints of old, and we pray that You would revive Your work throughout our lands, but we pray, Lord, that You would soon come again, that You would make all things new, and that You would bring this history to a close, that we would taste the the powers of the world to come, and that we would rejoice that You've already delivered us from our sin, and soon will deliver us from these bodies of death, so that we may rejoice and praise You for an eternity to come. We pray, Lord, for anyone here who does not yet trust in this God. There is no other security to be found in this world. And so we pray, Lord, that You would open their minds, and that You would open their hearts, and that You would show them the love and grace of Your Gospel, that they would rest on this foundation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.